0: The following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. This time of the year, more than any other time of the year, the minds of a great number of people for many different reasons are focused on one particular event, an event that is more amazing than a man walking on the moon, more profound than uh, the depths of studying an atom, more beneficial than all the benefits of modern medicine. An event that is incomprehensible, an event that the Apostle Paul calls the mystery of godliness. It is the advent of the incarnation of God the Son. But children, it took 4,000 years from the first promise of this event to when it occurred. Have you ever wondered why God took so long? Well, let me ask you, little ones what would you do tomorrow if at school or whenever you start back? your uh, mom sets before you or your teacher an algebra book. Algebra 2 or or geometry and expects you to uh, work the problems. Well it would be algebra to you. It would be like Greek to you. Uh, You couldn't do it because it's advanced math. How do you get to advanced math? You first learn to count your numbers. Then you learn your additions and your subtractions, your multiplication table, your divisions, and you build on that. And it's only as you build from the simple to uh, the less simple to the more profound that you come to a point uh, where you can do advanced math. Well, now just multiply that with this incomprehensible thing that God the Son took to himself a human nature lived in our midst and atoned for our sins by his obedience death burial and resurrection and if god had simply done that it simply would have been all the more incomprehensible and so he deliberately took 4000 years from the first promise in genesis 315 at the fall that he would provide a supernatural uh, give a supernatural provided redeemer to redeem us from the bondage of satan to that coming of the Savior. So throughout the Old Testament, like building blocks uh, that you might play with, uh, one upon another, um, math, numbers, and multiplication, and so forth, through signs, and pictures, and symbols, uh, types, and representations, God was slowly building the foundation for this truth. And out of all the books of the Old Testament, the one that speaks most foundationally and remarkably clearly about this truth is the book of Isaiah. In fact, it's been called the Gospel according to Isaiah, chapter after chapter. And it not only teaches about the Messiah, the Christ, it teaches us something about God because, as you know, Isaiah is a pronouncement of judgment. The first half of the book, he's dealing particularly with the judgment of Assyria on the northern kingdom. And how God does deliver the southern kingdom from Assyria. Um, but time and again, in the midst of gloom and darkness of judgment, there are these glorious announcements of restoration. But more importantly, of the restorer, of this remarkably provided king. And then we get to the second half, and it's, it's all the more glorious. But actually, there's probably no more comprehensive statement the entirety of the Old Testament and the one before us this morning in Isaiah uh, chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 about uh, the Advent and the Incarnation of our Savior. What I want to do is show you from these two verses what God is doing and God is promising to deliver his people from their sins by our supernaturally provided King. God promises to deliver his people from their sins by a supernaturally provided king. We'll look at this king under three headings. The nature of this king, some attributes of the king, and the dominion of the king. Well the first thing we have in the very first line in verse 6 is the nature of the king. And I use the word nature. Uh, deliberately, because this is a word that actually comes in our theology as we speak about the person of our Savior. He has two natures. And and this first little sentence, a simple sentence, expresses the most profound and incomprehensible truth in the Bible. The first half of the sentence announces that this king is going to be a man. And so the Holy Spirit says, For a child will be born to us. Well this child is a man child. This is the child that we're told uh, in the context is going to be uh, the son of David. Uh, This was the child that was promised to David in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It goes back to the child that was promised in Genesis 3.15 when God said that woman would bear a son and he would bruise the serpent Satan in the head. So, in this very simple language, God is saying that in the future he's going to provide an heir to King David, the son of David, and he's going to be a man. He's going to be a man, as you know, boys and girls, just like you are a boy or a girl. He has a human body, he has a human soul, and he was born as a little baby held in the arms of his mother there in Bethlehem, a true human being. But then the second part of the sentence says something that is all the more remarkable. It's Yes, David's had sons. He had his own immediate sons. He had generation after generation of sons of David who sat on the throne until the Babylonian captivity. But this son, who also is prophesied in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. We began with Psalm 89 as a Uh, of thanksgiving, because they're thanking God for this son. This is the eternal son, and so a son will be given to us. Now, You might want to just take this as a Hebrew parallel. Hebrew often does this, that child and son mean the same thing. But here son stands an absolute contrast or an advancement. Uh, A son will be given to us. We know that this son must be unique and different because of the attributes that are given to him uh, in this verse. They're all divine attributes. Because as I said already, God has given this promise that this uh, uh, son of David is going to be eternal. His kingdom is going to be everlasting. We think about what uh, God uh, says and then the son says in Psalm 2 as God mocks his enemies Uh, He says in verse 6, as for me, I've installed my king, so here's the Davidic king, upon Zion my holy mountain, and now the king speaks, I will surely tell the decree of Jehovah. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here he's the son as the eternal son, and he's the messianic son, and the begetting is merely the public proclamation that the Apostle Paul tells us to." protect particularly took place in his resurrection. So now we see the mystery of godliness. This man-child who is born is going to be a son given. The very language son given takes us to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave whom? His only begotten son. He gave him. It speaks here of his pre-existence. Or as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, he sent forth his son into the world to redeem us from the law. So clearly, by the language and the attributes here, this uh, son of David is the son of God. Now that is the great mystery, you see. mystery that is encapsulated encapsulated for us in our confession of faith. Chapter 8 is 924 in your hymn book, paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance, equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, and the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance. Now catch this. So that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator, between God and man? Those three withouts deal with ancient heresies that still stick around today, either in heresy or in people's ignorance. This glorious doctrine it's called the hypostatic union, the personal union, is one person the Lord Jesus Christ, He has two complete natures. They are without confusion or composition. Now this is absolutely necessary for your salvation. Two things. In the first place, to be your Savior, He had to be a suitable Savior. Hebrews makes a thing out of this, you know. He didn't come to die for angels. He came to die for the seed of Abraham. Came to die for the seed of Adam. He came as the second Adam because in the first Adam, we all, men, women, boys, and girls, died in him, as Paul says in Romans 5 we we're born dead in our sins and trespasses. We were lost in the first Adam. The second Adam comes in as the covenant head. He must come in our nature, doesn't he? Don't you see this? He had to come as fully a person, a, a man, that he might then take our place in that covenant, they might fulfill those two demands. One is perfect obedience and then eternal death. Our Savior had to be, has to be, a complete man. But if he were a complete man, and only that, he could do no more than the noble man did in, in the tale of two cities. One man can die in the place of another. One man could pay a judicial penalty of death for another. One man who was perfect could go to hell for another. But that's all he could do. He could go to hell and stay there forever and one person could be saved from hell. Because the punishment of sin is measured by the one against whom it is committed. Our sin is of an infinite nature. Our sin, the guilt of our sin, is eternal because it's against an infinite eternal God. And so our Savior had to be the sufficient Savior had to be divine, so that in that mystery of the cross, which we cannot begin to explain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In some way, in his human nature, uh, the God-man suffered the very ravages of hell, but because he was united to the divine nature in the one person, that it had an infinite eternal aspect. It was six hours and satisfied an eternal punishment for an innumerable host of elect people. Is it not remarkable? The nature of the king, the hypostatic union, this one person with two natures, how it magnifies the wisdom of only God who could have thought it, planned it, who could have accomplished it, the mystery that he could leave, in one sense, take to himself for human nature, why he continues to be the second person of the Godhead who is omnipresent. Just wonder. Be filled with awe at the wisdom and the power of God. In such a simple sentence, don't ever again read it without wonder. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Well, the Spirit goes on after showing us this nature of the person of the king, some attributes. And four are given. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, if you have the King James, a New King James, you know that it lists five attributes. Wonderful Counselor, and then the three pairs. <laughs> I, I think that the grammatical construction wonderful counselor can be done either way in terms of, of the grammar. Uh, makes a lot more sense for uh, a, a number of reasons. In the first place we have three pairs. Uh, it would be strange that you didn't have a pair to begin the series of pairs. Uh, but secondly, a counselor by itself is no divine attribute. Uh, it's, it's a, a communicable attribute of God that, that men are counselors and we are able to give counsel and wisdom to one another. It's only when it's coupled with a divine name, which we'll come back to, wonderful, does this really become uh, a divine attribute. And in fact, uh, Isaiah later will speak about the, the wonderful counselor. I, I think it's in, in chapter uh, 28. This also, uh, verse 29, this comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful. So in the very context, the counsel of God is, is described by this adjective, wonderful. So we have four pairs, and the first speaks to us then of this attribute that the king is going to be a wonderful counselor. Now a counselor is one who gives, in this case, good and wise counsel. And there's no one better suited than that, than the second person of the Godhead. In Proverbs uh, chapter 8, as Solomon speaks uh, uh, with some figures and and metaphor, but clearly about the second person of the Godhead, he he personifies wisdom, which is what counsel is all about. And he says in verse 12 of of Proverbs 8, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine, and sound wisdom I am understanding. Power is mine. By me kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. And my yield better than the choice of silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice, to endow those who love me with wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. Here we see the beauty and glory of the counsel of the one who in fact is the word of God, Uh, the spokesman for God, the prophet of God, uh, uh, the source of all wisdom is this person, this second person of the Godhead, now who comes incarnate as the God-king. But wonderful is a name for the second person of the Godhead. Remember the story of, of Samuel's parents, and when Manoah, Samuel's father, wants the angel to come back, as he asked him his name, remember the answer that the second person of the Godhead, the angel of Jehovah, gave? What do you ask? It's wonderful. That's a name for God. It means that I'm incomprehensible. Uh, to give a name was to be able to, to, to know somebody, to get their name. And he says, you can't really know me. I'm wonderful. And God is wonderful because he is incomprehensible. He is beyond finding out in himself. Unless he stoops and, and speaks to us and baby talks so that we can understand him. So uh, this God-man, this, this king that God is p- promising to, to provide is going to be the one of an infinite and divine and glorious council. Now all other kings need counselors and presidents need cabinets and, and, and all sorts. But our king, he needs no counselors because he is the wonderful counselor. And Paul says that in him are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom. And our counselor didn't keep them to himself, but he then, by his spirit, encapsulated all of that wonderful counsel right here in his word. And by his spirit, he is our prophet, teaches us the will of God for our salvation. And all wisdom, all that we read about in in Proverbs uh, chapter 8, all that wisdom is here in God's word for us. So that we then are able to rejoice and to uh, delight in the ways of the Lord. We need wisdom every day, don't you? And the first attribute you learn about your Savior King is that he's the fountain of that wisdom. And he promises in James if you lack wisdom, just ask. I give abundantly, I don't upbraid, I don't rebuke. I recognize your simplicity and your ignorance, and I'm very happy to give you wisdom and it is a fountain of wisdom that shall never dry up, never be exhausted, and it will always be fresh and refreshing for us. This is our Savior King. The second attribute that the Spirit gives us here about this King is that he is mighty God. Now obviously this is a divine attribute, and we, uh, it's one of the reasons that we recognize that the Son that's given to us, in fact, is, uh, is divine. And, and this is a, a description of God that is not so much about his essence as about his um, power. It's used again by Isaiah in 10.21. Um, yeah, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Speaks of Omnipotence, of power. It's similar to the Abrahamic name El Shaddai, God Almighty, which then is picked up in the last book of the Bible by a beautiful little Greek word that means Almighty. And it's the same concept. And what a place to find it here in the book where the saints are crying out for vindication and for the victory of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Time and again, our God is referred to as God Almighty. As He is here, and it's our Savior who is God Almighty. It is our Savior who this day is mounted on that white horse, and the sword of his word goes from his mouth. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. He'll subdue his people by His grace. He subdues his enemy by his awful judging power, because he's mighty God. There are mighty kings. They're mighty presidents. They cannot do anything for us really individually. They can do things for us corporately. But here is the King of kings and Lord of lords who is everything that we need and all of our weaknesses and all of our futilities and all of our struggles with sin and with relationships and with enemies and with persecution and whatever else. He's mighty God. The third attribute that is ascribed to him You'll find a bit strange. He's called Eternal Father. Now there's no confusion here with respect to what we call the personal attributes of God. Uh, the first person is only God the Father. The second person is God the Son. The third person is God the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. But we use Father other ways, don't we? We speak of George Washington as the father of our nation. We speak about the head or the patriarch of a clan as the father. In this way, as as our Savior is referred to here as our eternal father, we're reminded that he, in fact, is the founder of his church. Upon him, uh, this church is being built, and it is indestructible. He is the protector of his church and he has guaranteed that it shall prevail till the end of the world. In fact, it shall overcome and conquer the kingdom of Satan. And he obviously is the covenant head. He is the patriarch of his church. Now as our Father, he is eternal. We've seen he is the God-man. As this person then, he is an eternal person who always shall be in his divine nature, always has been, always will be. But in his person now, He is eternal. He is unchangeable as the God-man. He is eternal. As the eternal Father then, He is the one who has purchased and grants eternal life to all those to whom and for whom He is Father. As He has accomplished the salvation, the people that God gave to Him, He then gives them through His Holy Spirit eternal life. And so your Savior is your brother, your near kinsman, but in this glorious covenantal way of the family, he is your father, and he is your protector and keeper. It does not change. All that was revealed about him in the Old Testament, all that we read about him in the New Testament, this is who he is today, the eternal father. Now you see, it's because is the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, that this fourth attribute then is so applicable. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince, the Governor, the King. But he has one particular thing that is part of his reign, and that is it is a reign of peace. As announced by the angels, which is why we had this meditation, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. The word peace, shalom, wholeness, fullness, prosperity. And you see, it is only our king that can give us this peace because we are enemies with the triune God. We're under his wrath and condemnation. The rod of his iron would come down upon us incessantly and eternally in hell. But through his perfect obedience... Through his uh, judicial death on the cross and satisfying uh, the eternal wrath of God, by his death and burial, he has reconciled us to the Father, which means God has laid down his arms against his elect. When you're justified, which means God has pardoned all your sins, has constituted you and accepts you as righteous in his sight, what does Paul say? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are Peace with God. At peace with God. The holy God who had every right to destroy us forever has declared peace to us through the Prince of Peace. That then brings peace to us. Our consciences are devolved. They rise up against us. We will suppress them. In the middle of the night, they will awaken us with terror and dread. It's appointed a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But we saw last week that the blood of Christ cleanses the conscience. The Prince of Peace has removed the guilt of our conscience so that we begin to be at peace with ourselves. Now, Sometimes that is a, a very part of the growing process of sanctification. Some of you are not quite at peace with yourself yet. You can be full of doubt and Worries and anxieties, but the prince of peace, who dwells you by a spirit, is going to continually apply to you this peace, peace of conscience that will bring a wholeness to your being. That's what He's going to do. Now, when we're at peace with God and we begin to have peace for ourselves, then there is this peace on earth, first amongst men with whom, God is well pleased, within the body of Christ, in the family the family of God, we, we learn to live together at peace. And Paul says that means we've got to learn to be patient, we've got to be forbearing, we've got to forgive one another, we've got to love one another. But we begin to practice this. And we exhibit this love, this peace, and the world around us sees this. And it's like a, a lamp at night. It, it, as, as it attracts moths. When the church lives together this way, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's attractive, you see. Particularly in today's dysfunctional world. But the Prince of Peace dwells in our midst, creating peace. That's one of the delightful things about our early days here at Antioch is this concept of a family that we are. And and may God grant that whatever He does in terms for us in terms of, of conversions and growth that we'll grow as a family, not a disparate, disconnected group of people, because We recognize we're ruled by the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, these glorious attributes of our King. Well, it's because he is the God-man, because he has these particular attributes, many others, but these particular as the King, we then see his dominion, the dominion of the King There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now the Spirit shows us distinctly that this one of whom he has spoken, the child who is the divine son, who has divine attributes, in fact, is on the throne of David. It's alluded to in the second line of verse 6, government will rest on his shoulders. This is a phrase used later in Isaiah chapter 22 to speak of the administration of the Davidic kingdom. But It's stated quite explicitly then in verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So now this one, the God-man, with these attributes is being recognized as being placed on the throne of David according to the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7 and reiterated in Psalm 89 that the son of David would be a divine one who would reign and rule forever. So here we see that he now is appointed by God as king, he entered into that kingship at his resurrection and exaltation where he now rules over heaven and earth as we see there in Revelation chapter 19. Now, with respect to his kingdom, it is without end both geographically and temporally. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Now, the first part of this chapter, and I'm deliberately avoiding it because Pastor Groff will deal with it in a couple of weeks in Matthew, we see how connected to this promise is the kingdom beginning to expand band now amongst the Gentiles. But here it's simply that there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end geographically. So in Psalm 2, as he speaks of the Father's decree, he says, he said to me, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the uttermost ends of the earth as your possession. In a few moments, we'll sing Psalm 72, because this psalm then picks up this glorious theme of the worldwide expansion. Verse 8, May he also rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all the kings bow down before him. All nations serve That kingdom is coming. We pray every Lord's Day. We pray at every prayer meeting for the kingdom to come. We do so with absolute confidence. He who sent us into the world said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go you therefore and make disciples of the nations. You see, his kingdom is going to come. No country can shut its borders to him. It's only when he sovereignly doesn't want to go there. As soon as he's ready to go into a Muslim country, he'll go. As soon as he wants to overthrow the dictator of China, North Korea, he will. Uh, He has mysterious purposes for how he advances his church, but men cannot stop it. Satan cannot stop it. The beast, the dragon, uh, the false prophet, they can't stop it as we see in Revelation chapter 19. This kingdom, this kingdom of peace, this kingdom of reconciliation with God, is extending to the ends of the earth. But it's also an eternal kingdom. And so He says, uh, "From then on and forevermore, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness." From then on, from the day He begins it, forevermore. Now, this word "forevermore" uh, in some contexts can mean during the period of administration of that covenant, and that's fine because we have here the eternal covenant. We have here evermore applied to God. And thus, there'll be no end to this kingdom. He'll hand the meditatorial kingdom over to the Father, but he still shall reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. We shall be with him. Now, How does he accomplish this kingdom? It says that uh, he establishes and upholds it with justice and righteousness. And here we get to how our, our king, established and builds his kingdom. It is established, it is maintained with justice. He satisfied the justice of God. He dealt with all of the demerit that was against his people, fully satisfied that justice so that all who are in him are, as I said, justified and righteous. He reigns then with a righteous reign in and through his people. This is reminiscent of what we saw in, in some of these uh, uh, Messianic kingdom Psalms. Psalm uh, 96, for example, when it says, uh, We rejoice before the Lord for he's coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world and righteousness and peoples and faithfulness. Or a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 98. He's coming before the Lord. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and peoples with equity. This is his judgment that he's doing now and his kingdom comes then, that sword uh, is a spiritual sword and he comes then by regenerating us, bringing us into his kingdom and advancing his kingdom then by this spiritual means. It does not advance with swords loud clashing, with the advance of armies. It advances in this mysterious and supernatural way by the power of the Spirit through uh, the people of God. But advance, it does, and it will advance until the end of the age. And peace is established. You see, you've got you to relate this to what Isaiah says about the peaceable kingdom. Some people aren't willing to go this far, but when he spells out these metaphors of wild beasts and lambs and children and cobras living there together, of a righteous kingdom, uh, there's a day coming when our Savior is going to have glory and honor here, when men will beat their swords into plowshares, and there will be a period of time when there is no war, and when this glorious peace of Christ and his church shall prevail. This is what he's promising, you see. And then he has one of those signatures that we find in the book of Isaiah. There's two of them. One, the mouth the Lord has spoken. This one is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He's jealous for this. God who's promised this is jealous for it. Is he going to fail? Is he not going to do exactly what he says if he's zealous for it? And if he's zealous for the advance of his kingdom, what does that say about you and me? Where should our zeal be? should it not be for the coming of the kingdom, for the advance of the gospel, for the evangelism that we want to do here at Antioch and in our own personal contacts. It ought to be something that's at the foremost of our minds, that the king is going to use us uh, to cause his kingdom to come. And he's zealous that it comes. And that also means it can't fail. He's going to do it. As he subdued us to himself, He's going to subdue many others to himself. May he see fit to use us as well. And so God's promising us here that he's going to send this supernaturally provided king to deliver us from our sin. He alone can do it because of his nature. He is the God-man. Because of his attributes, he in fact is a wonderful counselor and eternal father and mighty God and prince of peace because he's the one that is then building his church and advancing it to the end of the age. We should be filled with joy and wonder and awe and praise as we meditate on these grand words. Uh, Our hearts should leap like a gambling calf with joy. Uh, We should indeed be really glad uh, in what God is saying here. Promise then to do what we know now that he is doing. But you see it also how it does give us confidence. We sit now poised as a baby congregation. Many still think that we shall not make it. Poised on the beginning of a new year. Look at the promise we have. Our strength's not in ourselves. Uh, Not one of us is capable of of building a church. Our strength's in the the God-man. The mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the eternal father, the prince of peace who's built in a church. And so we're going to enter this new year with great confidence. We don't know what he'll do. And it might be as well that we do fail. And that'll be for his glory. But we don't go into the the world thinking, into the year thinking that. Remember, we ask for wisdom. He says, Don't be like a wave back to and fro. No, believe. Don't doubt. Believe. Press forward then as we pray. And then I would ask each one of you today, do you know this peace that comes only from Christ? Does your conscience rest comfortably before a holy God? you fear not His wrath or condemnation? If that does not describe you, then consider the hope that is in this passage. As you sit here right now, that does not describe you, and you think of Revelation 19, the white-horsed warrior is going to destroy you. But if you will submit to him, the God of peace, ask him to save you for his sake, ask God to pardon your sins for the sake of the warrior king, then God immediately will convert you and bring you into peace